0: There's a story that years ago, when ice cream was a bit cheaper than it is now, a 10-year-old boy approached the counter in a soda shop. Remember those? We used to have those down on Main Street in Emmett, where you go up to the the counter. And he asked the waitress, What does an ice cream sundae cost? Fifty cents, she answered. And the boy dug deep into his pockets, and he pulled out an assortment of change, and counting it oh so carefully, trying to keep it in his hand, and... Pull the the coins apart. And the waitress grew more and more impatient with that. In her mind, she had bigger customers to wait on. And finally, the little boy asked, well, how much does it cost just for plain ice cream in a bowl? And with notable irritation, the waitress said, 35 cents. And the boy slowly counted his money and finally said, may I have some plain ice cream in a dish, please? He gave the waitress the correct amount, which was 35 cents, and she brought him the ice cream. Later, the waitress returned to clear the boy's dish, and when she picked it up, she felt a lump in her throat. On the counter, the boy had left two nickels and five pennies. She realized that he had enough money for the Sunday, but he sacrificed it so he could leave her a tip. And The story shows that we often treat people wrongly because we, we judge them incorrectly, and we know that we need to treat all people with respect and, and loving kindness because we, we don't know what's in their hearts. We don't know what they're going through. We don't know their motives. We don't know what they're, they're dealing with. And as we've seen in the last few weeks, the Apostle Paul was very concerned that the believers in Rome learn to accept one another and not judge one another. And he spends more time on this in the application part of his letter to the Romans than any other subject. More, more here than he does on love or the spiritual gifts or all those things. You know, of course, it's, we don't judge one another. We accept one another because of our love for one another. But Paul spends a chapter and a half on this. And what he's saying to us as we read it, more is at stake in Romans 14 than whether we just treat each other lovingly. When we disagree about things, about what to eat or drink or what, to, what days we hold sacred. Because these are all surface issues. And we saw them in Romans in chapter 14, if we go back to verses 1 and 2, verse 1 of this 14th chapter, it says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Then we saw the surface issues again in verse 5. One person regards one day above another, another regards each day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. And the question is, what's the big deal? Paul's burden at one level is not to judge or despise one another because of these disagreements. In verse 3, he says, The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. But at first, it all seems just a little superficial. It sounds like it's just external, minor, unimportant. Meat, vegetables, days, wine. And of course, in my mind, you know how my mind, you probably don't know how my mind works. Days, wine, and roses. (laughs) Because I've seen where, you know, you're going to have rose petals at a wedding. And people said, no, we can't have those. Because that stains the carpet. You know, and so, you know, people have got into disagreements on whether days, wine, and roses. You know, what's the big deal? But why bother with these non-essentials? You know, we, we might wonder, is Paul coming in for a landing here at the end of the book of Romans, and he's going to finish up his book, and he's going to sign it, as it were, and and a man by the name of Tertius was the scribe, and then Phoebe, a deaconess, she's the one that hand carried the letter to Rome, and you know how we're finishing up a letter and thinking, okay, there's just a few more things I need to cover here, and, you know, is Paul just trying to smooth out a few relational bumps? You know, up until now, there's been a few hints that more is at stake than relational smoothing. Paul has has elevated the whole thing immensely, By introducing the most weighty truths, the most weighty truths about God and Christ and salvation. In verse 3, he tells us not to judge the weak because God has accepted him. It's the doctrine of justification by faith, not by meat and vegetables. And then in verse 4, he says, It is before his own master that he stands or falls. Here we see the doctrine of final judgment that we're going to be looking at later this morning with the ominous words, are you going to stand or are you going to fall? Then he adds the doctrine of God's persevering grace in verse 4 at the end, and he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. And then in verse 8, he relates the issues of meat and vegetables and days and wine to the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 8. For if we live, we live for the Lord. For if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, and he might be that he might be Lord, both of the dead and the living. Why all these big, huge theological truths when we're talking about non-essentials, like meat, vegetables, and wine, and days? It's because what is at stake? What's at stake? And we see that in verse 15. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. And then down in verse 20. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. And then verse 23. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats. If these seemingly non-essential matters are not handled correctly in the judging and there's judging of one another, and there's contempt for one another, if it continues here in the church at Rome, the results, Paul is saying, are catastrophic. The work of God is torn down, believers are hurt, lives are destroyed, and some live their lives in condemnation. So just trying to smooth it over till we all get to heaven isn't going to cut it, is it? It's so significant That Paul is concerned and so burdened about this that at no point in this does he let the believers in Rome off the hook even a little bit or try to make less of the severe consequences. The apostle is so concerned about disagreements in the church, whatever they might be, that they will ruin believers and tear down the work of God that he takes the big theological truths to the very end in this passage, into eternity. Believers in Rome, don't think you're going to wiggle out of this one. And here comes the big theological truth. Why not? The end of verse 10, For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Verse 12, So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now to understand what it means to judge your brother, we also need to understand what it means to regard your brother with contempt. Paul asked in verse 10, but you, why do you judge your brother? Obviously, the Roman Christians were judging one another. Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? Obviously, they were doing that. So we need to understand what it means to regard somebody with contempt. What does it mean to regard somebody with contempt? And we have an example in Scripture. Turn to the 18th chapter of Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 18, beginning at the ninth verse. And at first we might think, well, this is an extreme example, but it's a very clear example uh, because it's regarding the Pharisees. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus told a parable that contrasted two groups of Jews. One man represented the Pharisees, he was a Pharisee, and the other represented the tax collectors and, and sinners. One man used himself as the measure of righteousness, and the other used God as his measure. And so Luke plainly tells us why Jesus told this story. Verse 9 of the 18th chapter of Luke. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Contempt. There's our word. That's what people, the Christians in Rome they're in Rome, are doing. They're holding their brother and sisters in contempt. You see, the self-righteous Pharisees had an inflated sense of self-importance and superiority. They were more important than anybody else. They were superior to everybody else. And as a result, they viewed everybody else with contempt. Now, the word translated contempt means to treat with contempt. And it's also translated in the New Testament to despise somebody and to reject somebody. Same word. In Acts chapter 4, when Peter was arrested and he was brought before the Jewish council, he preached the gospel to them. And he concluded by using the same word for contempt, but it's translated as rejected in Acts 4, 11, When Peter declared that Jesus was the stone which was rejected. There's our word. And of course, you might remember Isaiah, Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected among men, he was despised and rejected. So, so this kind of rejection is not. It's more than just a shunning. I don't want anything to do with that person. I'm going to ignore them. I'm going to stay away from them. I'm going to turn my back when you know. I'm going to. I see him in the aisle in in Albertsons. You know, I'm going to go the other way and hope they don't see me. That kind of stuff. But that's bad enough, you know, because you don't like somebody or you don't like what they say or you don't like what they believe. But The Pharisees had participated in the devilish act of crucifying Christ. Contempt has a target. And the targets are those that they view with contempt. And out of contempt for Jesus, the Pharisees aimed their sights and they pulled the trigger. Contempt has a target. And maybe a lesser sense, but not really. It's really wanting... To see something bad happen to another person because of, of whatever it is. And so Jesus continues with the story. Verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. There's the contempt. I fast twice a week i pay tithes of all that i get now even though the pharisee was addressing god in his prayer the grammatical structure construction of the language in the greek shows that he was really talking to himself the pharisee stood and was thus praying this to himself and he was reviewing his own self righteousness he presumed to inform god about what a superior person he was He took pride in his works of righteousness and the works that separated him from others, distinguished him from others. After all, that's what the word phariseos means in the Greek. It means separated one, literally. You know, we're so much better than everybody else. We've got it all together. We believe the right stuff. We do the right stuff. But the Pharisee is to be pitied. His acts of piety and good works cannot bring him one step closer to God. Because he's not even talking to God, but to himself. As Shakespeare's Claudius says in Hamlet, My words go up, my thoughts remain below, words without thought, never to heaven go. Isn't that something? The Pharisee knows nothing of the works and the presence of God in his life. Nothing. He's in his own little world relishing in his own supposed goodness where he casts aspersions on everybody else that passes by. He thinks he has everything right and everyone else, except maybe for a few other Pharisees that happen to agree exactly like him, they're all wrong. But Jesus continues in verse 13, but the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling To lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Unlike the Pharisee, the tax collector did not boast in his own righteousness or good works, but he pleaded with God for mercy on account of his sin. And the word translated mercy here means to be propitiated or satisfied with the sacrifice. In a word, the tax collector was asking for God's forgiveness, for his goodness. In his penitent prayer, King David prayed, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Isn't that something? While the broken and contrite tax collector was despised by the Pharisee and looked upon with contempt, God will not despise him. Oh God, you will not despise despise. So Jesus adds in verse 14, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Went to his house justified. What does that mean? We've seen in the book of Romans, it means to be declared righteous by God. To be in righteous standing before God, to be justified, because he looked to God for the gift of righteousness, rather than claiming his own righteousness on his own merit, as the Pharisee had done. To be righteous in God's sight, one must acknowledge his lack of personal righteousness, rather than pretending to have some kind of righteousness that he does not have. Justification depends on God's grace, not on human works or merit. So having answered the question, "Was it mean to regard someone with contempt? We turn to the question of judging. And once again, we look to the Pharisees. Turn over to the seventh chapter of Matthew's gospel, beginning at the first verse. When we read Jesus' words in the seventh chapter of Matthew, which is in the Sermon on the Mount, we once again have to keep the Pharisees in mind. Once again, the Pharisees are the example of what it means to be judgmental. Not only did the Pharisees treat others with contempt, they were quick to criticize and judge others. And in Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew's chapter 5 through 7, Jesus constantly contrasts the views of the scribes and the Pharisees with true godliness and righteousness. The Pharisees' view of life was to be proud. The view of the Beatitudes was to be humble. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The Pharisees believed in an external morality. The Lord said it was to be from the heart. Blessed are the pure in heart they shall see God, we shall behold him, because we in Christ we are pure in heart. In Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, we come to the heart of the Pharisees' relationship to other people. The Pharisees were so proud, so self-righteous, and so convinced of their own superiority that they became completely condemning and judgmental of everyone else. So in contrast to the attitude of the Pharisees, Jesus told his audience in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 7, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Now you hear people who are caught up in some kind of sinful lifestyle or they're doing something that is sinning or they're caught up in some false religious system and they try to justify themselves to you by quoting this passage. Do not judge lest you be judged. In other words, you can't judge me because the Bible says you can't judge me. You don't judge, so don't judge me. And so they try to condemn others who might make any kind of negative evaluation of what they do and what kind of lifestyle they are living. But when Jesus says here, do not judge, he was not referring to the type of discernment or judgment that recognizes sin. Sin is sin, and we recognize that for what it is, based on God's word. Or error, false doctrine. We are to be discerning of false prophets and false doctrine. You know them how by their fruit. And you have to what? Be a fruit inspector. You know, I grew up in a family where one of the members of the family is always saying, oh, we're not called to be fruit inspectors. And going, go, yeah, <laughs> we are. <laughs> we are. Because those are the kind of judgments we need to judge false, false doctrine. We need to be aware of Satan's schemes. The scripture exhorts us to be discerning in these areas, to make a judgment. Rather, when Jesus tells us do not judge, he has in mind the judgmental, critical, egotistical, condemning self-righteousness that's typified by the Pharisees. As believers, we must make judgments. We are exhorted to make evaluations, to be discerning. Paul says to the the believers in Romans chapter 16, verse 17, Keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned, and turn away from them. In order to turn away from such people, we must make a judgment about what they are saying and what they are doing. That causes so much grief in the church. Now a simple translation. In Matthew chapter 7 verse 1. Can be rendered. Do not criticize. Do not criticize. The Greek verb is. Translated judge is krino. And there's a related noun form. Which is kritis. Does that sound familiar? We get our word critic. And criticize from it. And so do not criticize. Is a perfectly good translation. In fact it's a transliteration. The question is, what does that really mean? The key to understanding what Jesus has in mind here in verse 2 of Matthew 7 is in verse 2, where he says, For the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. So what was the standard of measure that was established by the Pharisees? Let's go back to that. They had set up an impossible standard of measure that they couldn't even live up to themselves. And then they judged everybody else by that standard of measure. They had encrusted the law of God with some 350 extra do's, one for every day of the Greek or the Hebrew week or the year, and some 250 extra don'ts. And then under each of these do's and don'ts, they had categories and subcategories that tried to shackle every aspect of a person's life. Even though what? They couldn't live up to it themselves. They tried to on the external just so they looked good. And then they stood on their high pretentious platform of their erroneous standards. And they judged everybody else by that platform, by their self-designed exacting yardstick. You see, judgmentalism can only stand when it tears somebody else down. That's the way it works. Destructive criticism has one objective, to tear people down so the critic can stand taller. You see, the danger in legalism is not particularly inherent in the list of the rules of do's and don'ts that they make or don't make. It's, it's what legalists do with the list. They use the list to tear other people down. Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, look at that. They use the list to prove other people are wrong. They use the list to criticize others. They use the list to prove that no one is right except them. Now, Jesus said... That by the Pharisees' standard of measure that they have set up, it would be measured unto them. He said, God says, I'm going to take this list and that's how I'm going to judge you. You will be judged by the very standard that they establish themselves. The, the person who judges others very critically will experience a similar rigorous examination from God. And with that, we come to the judgment seat of God. The judgment seat of God. In Romans chapter 14, verse 10, that's where it says the judgment seat of God. In other passages in the Bible, it's called the judgment seat of Christ. But they're, they're, they're one and the same. So verse 10 of Romans chapter 14 Every once in a while I'll say, this may have been the longest introduction I've done in the history of my sermons. <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. yeah, We're three-fourths of the way through and we're finally getting to the passage. Romans chapter 14, verse 10. But you, why do you judge your brother, or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Two times, Paul says, we will be judged by God. Verse 10, we will stand; all stand before the judgment seat of God. Verse 12, so then, each one of us will give an account of himself. And then in between, he supports this with an Old Testament quote from Isaiah chapter 45, where he says, as... I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. The, the stress is on each, every, all. That's the stress. That means that every single person, every single individual will give a personal account of his or her life to God. Each one of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the judgment seat of God in the same way that the Apostle Paul stood before the judgment seat of Galileo in Corinth, and just the same way he stood before the judgment seat of Governor Festus in Caesarea, you and I will stand before the judgment seat of the creator of the universe. You are not a statistic. You are not a face in the Christian crowd. You were created personally by God for a reason. And you will give an account of how you fulfilled his purposes for you on earth. Namely, to trust him, to love him, to obey him, and display his excellence to the world. To show his glory. Each one of us will give a personal account to God. If that just caused you to go like this, that was Paul's intent. So let's sort this out. Turn over the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, chapter 20. Here we see that there are books with all our deeds written in them. Everything that we have done, either good or bad, are written in the books. You know, I've been telling Jan all week, I I need to figure out how to work this in because we play rummy cube at night together, you know, and we keep score. And, you know, not only for that night, but we have a notebook that we call the permanent record. (laughs) And and we put every score in there. And so up until this last week, I had the biggest fail. You know, I had 72 points against me still on my, you know, till this week, Jan had 74 points. And I can prove it because it's in the permanent record. Now, isn't that good how I worked that in there? We see that there are books that are opened at the judgment with all our deeds written in them. Everything we have done, either good or bad. And there's another book called the book of life with the names of those who are written, uh, those who are in Christ are written in the book of life. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, it's called the book of life of the Lamb of God who was slain. And so we come to that in uh, verse 11 of Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds." And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now we know this is the great white throne judgment. Where after the millennial kingdom and uh, heaven and earth have passed away, everybody who who died not knowing the Lord, basically, comes before Christ. And they're judged by their works, and they all fail. And their their name's not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But our point here is not to say, I I don't know exactly when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ in in judgment. And a lot of that depends on whether you're pre-trib, post-trib, non-millennial, all those kind of things. Everybody puts a kind of a different slot. But what I want us to see here is the Lamb's Book of Life. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. These books in heaven with deeds of every human being recorded and everyone, including believers we're going to see, are judged according to these books. They're the permanent record. But only those whose names are in the land's book of life escape the lake of fire. So what does that mean? First, it means that no one will be saved because of their deeds. Their good deeds outweighing their bad deeds. You know, if a person does not belong to Christ, if a person is not trusted in the blood of the Lamb, the Son of God, so that he is in Christ, clothed with Christ's righteousness, then the books are only of condemnation. Only condemnation. As Paul said, none is righteous. No, not one. How many sins does it take to make you unrighteous? One. One. And when did you first commit that sin? Probably the moment you selfishly cried when you were born. <laughs> you know? so, because we are sinners we are sinners by nature. and We've wanted our own way ever since then, right? But that does not mean that the books are useless when it comes to the judgment of those whose names are in the book of life. Not at all. God still has a use for those books. What do the books have to do with the judgment of those who are written in the Lamb's book of life? Paul said in Romans 14, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul writes, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And I don't know where that is in relationship to the great white throne judgment that we talked about. But we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The word translated appear, we must all appear, means to make manifest, to make clear, to reveal. In that day, the full truth about the life and the character and the deeds of each believer in Jesus Christ will may be made clear. Each believer will discover the real verdict on his or her ministry and service and motives. All hypocrisy and pretense is going to be stripped, stripped away. First Samuel 16, 7 declares that, For God sees not as man sees, for, God, for man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. The true assessment of the work God has done in and through believers will be fully disclosed on that day. Hebrews 4, 13 says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom... We have to do. So turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning at verse 10. In the third chapter of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul has been addressing strife and jealousy in the church. That's centered around personalities, about who followed who. You know, you know, I follow Paul. His teaching is so much better than Apollos. And Apollos, some are saying, I follow Apollos. And earlier in the chapter, there were those who say, well, I just follow Jesus. You know, that's kind of pharisaical when you really think about it, isn't it? You know, to assume that you don't follow anybody else. But anyway, Paul is pointing out that in spite of these divisions, we're all in the Lord's work together. And, and there's no place for this partisan bickering and fighting and and each worker will receive his own reward according to his own labor. And so with that, Paul turns the subject of the assessment of the judgment of each believer's works. Verse 10. He says, well, let's start with verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. I always love it when Paul mixes metaphors. Workers, field, building. Well, which is it, Paul? Well, it's, it's, it's all of those. He says, according to the grace of God, which is given to me, like a wise builder, I laid a foundation. And what's that foundation? There's no other foundation than Jesus Christ. Paul went from church to church, from city to city, laying the foundation of the gospel and the word of God, the living word and the written word of Jesus Christ. And, And another is building on it. Whether you're Apollos or whoever you are, he just builds on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. We have to be careful how we build on the foundation of Jesus Christ. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is in Jesus Christ. The foundation on which we build our lives is Jesus Christ. So the first thing we see here, this is not a judgment to determine our eternal destiny. We are in Christ. We are building on Christ. We are saved. Jesus was clear that those who have received him for the forgiveness of their sins, will never stand before God to determine one's eternal destiny. That's already settled. In fact, Jesus plainly said that. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Present tense. The moment you believe, you have eternal life. And does not, what? Come into judgment. But has passed out of death into life. And so we don't stand before God, before the judgment seat of Christ, to determine whether our names are written in the Lamb's book of life or not, because that's already been settled. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. We stand in the righteousness of God. Romans 14 says, we will stand for the Lord will make us stand. But that does not get us off the hook when it comes to revealing the full truth, the full character, the motive of each and everything We have done. Where all hypocrisy and all pretense is stripped away. We'll look closely at verse 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3 to see how this works. Now if any man builds on the foundation, that is the foundation, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it. That's the judgment day. The day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. So, so what's being judged here? It, it's our work. It's not our salvation. It's not our character. It's not any of those kind of things because we have taken on the righteousness of Christ and our character is to be like Christ. But we, we can either build our life with permanent building materials or we can build our life with inferior building materials. And every Christian is a builder, and every Christian builds with certain materials. Now, what do these materials represent? In other words, when it comes to gold and silver and and precious things that, that can, precious stones that resist the fire and cannot be destroyed by fire, you know, we ask the question, how well do we serve the Lord with what he has given us to work with? You know, he gives you things. He's not going to judge me based on what he gives to you. He's not going to judge you based on my spiritual gifts or my talents or my abilities or or, or anything. But he's going to judge each one of us. So the materials represent our works that are written down in the books. These are the works that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, where he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. Which God prepared beforehand. God prepared my works beforehand. He prepared your works beforehand. So what? That we should walk in them. Works are the source. Or not the source of the Christian life. We don't get saved by our works. Our Christian life is not basically. Our salvation not based on our works. But our works that were prepared beforehand. Are the marks of our Christian life. Are we walking in those works? So verse 14 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says, Our works will be tested with fire. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. See, that's what we've been saying. Yet as through fire. You know, it's, it's really a great word picture here. The thought is of a person who runs through flames without being burned but still has the smell of smoke on him, barely escaping. <laughs> the day of rewards, the useful and evil things are burned away, but salvation will not be forfeited. And when we think about would we want it any other way? Do we want anything of the, the badness and the things that should have been burned away as we go into eternity with Christ? This is really a glorious thing. This, this is kind of like the final purification before we enter into eternity with Christ. And what remains, a reward will be given. The deeds which are eternal and for which we will receive an eternal reward are those that the Holy Spirit does in us and making us more and more like Jesus Christ, and those things the Holy Spirit does through us as we lure, lure, love and serve one another in the name of Christ. In other words, believers will be rewarded for the deeds and the motives that please and glorify the Lord. And everything else is going to be be burned up. So I want to close with what I believe to be the the greatest motivator. Why would we want to live a life that is pleasing to God? There's lots of reasons. But I want to point to the, the heavenly rewards. They're often referred to as crowns in the Bible. There's the crown of righteousness that we receive, those are for those who have loved the appearing of the Lord Jesus. But since it's called the crown of righteousness, this is a crown, this is a reward that every believer is going to receive. Because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It's kind of like the attendance award. You get a reward when you stand before Jesus Christ just because you're there. <laughs> just because, and you're clothed in his, his, his righteousness. Then there's the crown of life who persevere under trial, especially under the trial of martyrdom. And so oftentimes it's called the martyr's crown. Just looking yesterday, in the last decade in our world, the last 10 years, 900,000 Christians have been killed for their faith. It's one every six minutes in our world. That's a lot of crowns. Put that over the last 2,000 years. That's a lot of crowns. Even those in the book of Revelation. And John says, who are these who are underneath the, the throne and praising God? He says, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. These are the ones who lost their lives in the great tribulation period. That's a lot of crowns. The crown of life. Then there's the crown of exaltation and the crown of joy. This is for those who lead others to Jesus Christ. If you've been instrumental in leading another person to the Lord Jesus Christ, you get the crown of exaltation, the crown of joy. And then there's the crown of glory, which is for faithful shepherds, for faithful pastors. And, of course, my pastor's wife, (laughs) she's always asking the question, well, what do faithful pastors' wives get? And I don't know, but it sure has to be a whole lot more (laughs) than than what the pastor gets because she has to put up with me, and so... And then there's that beautiful picture in the book of Revelation where the 24 elders fall before the throne of Christ and worship him. And what do they do? They cast their crowns in worship before the throne. Saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, for you receive power and honor and glory. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. It's a recognition that God was at work in us and through us for his good pleasure, and that all of our rewards ultimately, rightfully, belong to him. And we cast our crowns before him in worship. And there's really a wonderful thing here when you think about it. In some measure, in some regard, and and I don't understand all of this or pretend to understand all of this, but there's some, because of our rewards, the crowns that we receive, that directly affect our capacity to worship Christ for all eternity. The more crowns, the the more worship. Somehow that's going to affect our ability to worship him for all eternity. But then I want to say one more thing about this. You know, have you ever thought about, who would it be cool to stand next to or be close to when you stand before Christ and worship him in eternity. You know, we think of our loved ones, and that, that's a wonderful thing, but but I think of people in history, you know. And I think of a, a couple of them, George Whitefield and uh, and John Wesley, who were used of God of the Great Awakening in the United States and used of God in the revival in England. And, and George Whitefield and John Wesley were very close friends, but they had sharp disagreements. George Whitefield was a strict Five-point Calvinist. And John Wesley was Arminian. I won't go into all of that. But they were close friends. And, and one time when George Whitfield was preaching to tens of thousands of people in a field in the open air and everybody could hear him, he just had that marvelous Scottish voice that just went out, you know. And uh, at the end of the, the service, somebody was asking him, uh, Mr. Whitfield, do you think you will see John Wesley in heaven? <laughs> And George Whitfield replied, Oh, he shall be so ever closer to God than I, that I will there get a sight of him. And so, with that, I thought, Well, it'd really be cool, you know, when I get to meet George Whitfield or John Wesley in heaven or somebody else. But what if, what if there was the tax collector standing next to me? The man who beat on his breast <laughs> said, God, be merciful. To me, a sinner. You know, anything that we may have disagreed on IRS-wise, never made any, doesn't make any point at that point. What about if there's the thief on the cross? Or any other thief? Maybe even a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. You know, all these people that we thought we had all these disagreements with with one voice, what well, if there's a 10-year-old boy who bought an ice cream? <laughs> yeah, that's the wonder and the glory of heaven that awaits us. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much that how well it worked out this morning that our theme has been the blessed hope of the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ and the songs that we have sung and what you have shown us today, Father. And, and Father, we look forward to that day and we pray, Maranatha, even come, so come, Lord Jesus, Father. And I thank you that uh, you don't judge us for our salvation based on our works or, or what we do or, or don't do, Lord. And I thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ, to Through faith in him and his death on the cross, Father, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And we'll stand for you and we will stand, Romans says. And Father, I thank you that through fire you're going to burn away any vestige of the old life that has nothing to do with the glory and the righteousness that we will experience for all eternity. Father, we continue to look forward to that day as we sing our closing songs this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.